Welcome to the Summerton Church of God Sermon Podcast, a podcast to help you find life, freedom, and purpose in Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies given about the birth of Christ alone. And every single prophecy was fulfilled exactly the way that God said the birth of Jesus was going to happen. I want to begin today and for the next few weeks, I want to talk to you about the light of the world. Many of you know that when Jamie and I first came here, I did a demographic study of a 10 mile radius of our church. Found out that there are 32,689 people within that 10 mile radius. And so many of that 32,689 are living in darkness. Darkness of sin, the darkness of bondage, the darkness of addiction, the darkness of hurt. And on and on and on I could go trying to describe the darkness that so many people in our community live in. And so we began an effort right off the bat. We began an effort to be light. Jesus said, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And he said that we are to let our light shine in such a way that others see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And that's what we've tried to become all about is being light and eliminating the darkness in our community. You know, sometimes I I think that we believe that the first Christmas was just full of candy canes and joy and peace and love and contentment and festivity and parties. We we just sometimes kind of have that image in our mind that that was just kind of like like what the first Christmas must, must have been like. But the Bible seems to tell us something a little bit differently than that. Even even back in Isaiah chapter 9, when Isaiah began to prophesy about Christmas, he he said it like this in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. He said, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shone. So he gives us two statements here that describe to us what the world was like that Jesus was born into. He said, number one, he said that people would be walking in darkness. There would be individual darkness. There would be sin that would permeate their lives. There would be a lack of hope. There there would be discouragement. There, There would be bondages. There would be oppression. There would be depression. That people would be walking in darkness, but not only... Did he say there would be individual darkness? But he also said that in the land of the shadow of death is where they would dwell. That that it wasn't just be them that was in darkness, but the community in which they lived would be dark. That the town, the city, the nation that they were living in would have been dark. And and, and so this morning, I want to begin this little short series we're going to look at through Christmas by talking to you about in the dark streets shineth. 
How many of you remember the old Christmas hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem? O Little Town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie above thy deep and dreamless sleep. The silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight, speaking about Jesus. And then that, that Christmas carol that so many of us love to hear this time of year, oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. But then listen to the next sentence. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. In the dark streets shineth. How many of you know that Christmas can get messy? That, that Christmas can become complicated? And, and how many of you know this morning that Christmas can get really expensive? And that, that's why I'm so thankful that we have things like Toys for Tots and our driven ministry and, and things of that nature to try to help families out during this time of year, to try to, to try to make it a little less stressful for them, to try to lighten a little bit of their burden, lighten a little bit of their load. But Christmas can really get messy. It, it can get complicated. It, it can definitely get expensive. And, and one of the reasons why I think it can get messy and complicated is because, you know, it's that one time of year where we have family in close proximity. You know what I'm talking about. And some of you are already beginning to think, how in the world am I going to seat everybody around the table because I can't put uncle so-and-so beside aunt so-and-so. Because if I seat uncle so-and-so beside aunt so-and-so, it's not going to be good. I mean, it's going to be Trump this and Trump that. It's going to be I'm for a wall or I'm against a wall. It's going to be I, I think we ought to save the whales or I hate whales. You know what I mean? It can get messy. It can get complicated really, really quick. And, and I think that sometimes that, that we lose sight of, of what the first Christmas was actually like. And so I, I want to just share with you this morning a few things that, that caused the world that Jesus was born into to be so dark, to be so messy, to be so complicated, because that first Christmas was also messy. That first Christmas was also complicated. And listen to me, that first Christmas was also very expensive because it cost God his son. But, but, but notice one of the reasons why the world was so dark that Jesus came into is because the word of God had not been heard for four centuries. Now, can you imagine 400 years that God has remained silent? 400 years that God had not spoken. The last prophet that God had spoken through was a guy by the name of Malachi. That's the last book of the Old Testament. And the last verse of Malachi, God speaks through the prophet and says that I'm going to send another prophet like Elijah, and he's going to be a forerunner announcing the arrival, announcing the birth of Jesus Christ. And of course, in Matthew chapter 1, we see the fulfillment of that prophecy when that prophet like Elijah was a man by the name of John the Baptist who was to be a forerunner of Christ. 
But up until that time, up until John the Baptist came on the scene saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, God had been silent for 400 years. So there was spiritual darkness. But not only that, another reason why it was so dark and messy and complicated is because the people of God were under the oppressive rule of Rome. Everywhere you looked, you saw Roman guards policing the streets of Jerusalem, reminding the nation of Israel that you belong to us. You may live here, but we're in control of this place. And you're to do everything that we ask of you to do. So they're under the oppression of Rome. They, they are, even though they may not be in an Egypt or in a Babylon in captivity, they are captives in their own nation as they're oppressed by the nation of Rome. A third reason why it was so dark when Jesus came into the world is because the nation of Israel was fracturing that there were four different groups in the nation of Israel that was trying to, to lead the people religiously. There, there was, first of all, there was the, the Pharisees, and we're all familiar with the Pharisees, those legalistic Jews who had taken the Ten Commandments that God had given Moses and they had expanded them to 613 and they had become very legalistic. But not only that, they tried to encourage the people to live not necessarily by the Word of God, but according to their traditions. So you had the Pharisees and then you had the, you had the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, they rejected the strict religious um, uh, beliefs of, of the Pharisees. Uh, they, they only held to the Ten Commandments of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, and they rejected everything that the Pharisees taught, but... They, they also did not believe in a resurrection, a resurrection of the body. They didn't, they, they didn't believe in angels. But, but you had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, and then you had the Essenes. And the Essenes were that group of people that lived down in Qumran, down near the Red Sea. They're the ones who preserved the Dead Sea Scrolls from which we get our scriptures today. They were devoted to God. And they were praying to God for the overthrow of Rome. But then you also had the zealots, and the zealots were a band of brothers who had come together and said, pray for the overthrow of Rome, nothing. We're, we're gonna overthrow Rome, all right, but we're gonna do it violently. We're gonna take it by force. And so you had all of these groups fighting for control so that the nation of Israel was fractured. Here's a fourth reason why the world was so dark that Jesus came into. And that is the birth of Jesus came through a virgin. You say, well, why would that make the world dark? Listen, I know we celebrate the birth of Jesus. It is a miracle. And, and, and many of us, if not all of us in this room here today, we believe in the virgin birth of Christ. But you've got to go back into the time in which it happened. I mean, you've got a young girl about 16 years old saying she's never had sex, but she's pregnant. I mean, go try to figure that out. Go try to explain that. How do you explain that 
to your family? How do you explain that to your friends? How do you explain that to your neighbors, the people in your community? So, so Mary and Joseph, they were ridiculed. And even after Jesus was born, Jesus would have been ridiculed because of the circumstances from which he was born that people didn't believe that there could be such a thing as a virgin birth. But then there was a fifth reason and these last two, I want to just kind of expand on a little bit. But another reason why the world was so dark into which Jesus was born is that the census that was required of all the people was a considerable imposition. You may have remembered that they were commanded that they had to go to their hometown and register. They, they had to go to their hometown to pay their taxes. And that was, that was extremely uh, in, in a considerate imposition to especially Mary and Joseph. I mean, let, let's look at how the Bible tells us about that. It says it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Now get this, what if all of us had to go back to our hometown where we were born to pay our taxes? What if we couldn't just e-file? You know, what if we couldn't just do it the, the convenient, quick way? What if we had to load everybody up, go back to our hometown, register, and pay our taxes? That means every year I would have to go back to Alabaster, Alabama. If it was as a nation, all of us would have had to go to Washington, D.C. to pay our taxes. And so Joseph, being from Bethlehem, has to go now from Nazareth back to Bethlehem where he was born. And it was a real imposition. Look at verse four, it says that Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Now listen, it was a hundred miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And it's not just Joseph, it's Joseph and his wife, Mary. And at this time, Mary is ultra pregnant not not just pregnant she's ultra pregnant not not just pregnant she's pregnant that's how pregnant she is and she's got a 100 mile journey ahead of her and let me just tell you something the donkeys in that day did not have a suspension system on them there were no cars there were no buses there were no trains you couldn't call uber to come and pick you up and take you that 100 miles. No, they had to travel 100 miles through horrible terrain in order to get from where they were over mountains through streams to get back to Bethlehem where they could register and pay their taxes. And if that wasn't enough, let me just tell you, God really made things more difficult than they should have been. Because look at what happens next. When they got there to be registered, she was with child. And it said, it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. I mean, come on, folks. God did know this was going to happen. I mean, God knew hundreds, God knew thousands of years that this was going to happen on this particular night. I mean, the least he could have done was made a reservation, right? At a hotel. 
But she gets to Bethlehem, all of a sudden she goes into labor, and, and there is no room in any of the hotels in town. And so she ends up, as you know the Christmas story, she ends up in a stable giving birth to the Lord Jesus Christ in, in an animal trough, in a manger. So, so don't tell me that the first Christmas wasn't a little messy. Don't tell me it wasn't a little bit complicated. And really, to make matters even worse, the biggest thing about that first Christmas is that through the hostile forces of Herod, Satan was trying to kill Jesus. I mean, you had Herod, the tyrant, Herod, who was the most important person in all of Jerusalem. Matter of fact, Herod loved to refer to himself as Herod the Great. But he had a nickname that was ascribed to him that he really liked. And the nickname that was ascribed to him was Herod, the king of the Jews. Now that ought to trigger something in your mind this morning. Because you remember when Jesus was crucified, he was put on a cross. And above his head, written in four different languages, was that statement, Jesus, king of the Jews. And so what happens now here, we're in Matthew chapter 2. And the wise men have seen a star in the east. And so they're following this star to go where Jesus is born. And when they get to Bethlehem, they ask about the place of his birth. Where, where is it that this king of the Jews has been born? They find out, of course. And then Herod hears that a baby has been born who is being called the king of the Jews. Well, hey, hold on just a minute now because he thinks I'm the king of the Jews. And, 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 and apart from me, there is no king of the Jews. And so he says to the wise men, he said to them, he said, listen, when you find him, let me know so that I can come and worship him. I, I mean, murder him because that's exactly what he had in mind. He wanted to kill Jesus. See, Herod wanted to end Christmas before Christmas ever got started. And pick up in the story with me, if you would, here in Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 13, because the wise men have left now. And it says that when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother. And let me just say this right here. This is a part of the Christmas story that most pastors won't read and don't read. This is the part of the Christmas story that everybody stops reading before they get to this part of the Christmas story that talks about the messiness, the complication, and, and, and just the darkness that surrounded that first Christmas. But it says, arise, take the young child Jesus and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, that is Joseph, and departed for Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And this is the prophet Hosea that gave us this prophecy. And by the way, in the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies given about the birth of Christ alone. And every single prophecy was fulfilled exactly the way that God said the birth of Jesus was going to happen. It was almost like God was calling his shot before it ever happened. Eight ball corner pocket. That's God. 
talking about how the birth of Jesus Christ is going to take place. Over 300 prophecies fulfilled to the T. You know what that tells me? It tells me when God says something's going to happen and the way it's going to happen, you can trust God to do it exactly the way he said he was going to do it and how he's going to do it. Amen? He said, out of Egypt, the prophet said, out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, because the wise men never came back and told him where they found Jesus so that he could come and worship, I mean, kill, kill him. And it says, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, he was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth, see if I can get this right. He sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken not by Hosea, but by Jeremiah the prophet, saying a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, which means loud cries, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Some of you are looking at me now like, I know now why pastors don't read that part of the Christmas story. I know now why we stop prior to that part of the Christmas story because it shows us how messy, how complicated, how dark the world was. Even to the point that Herod was being moved and inspired by Satan. And you've got to understand something about Herod. Anybody that posed a threat to him, man, he killed him. He killed his two eldest sons. Because he thought that his eldest sons thought that the line of succession wasn't moving quick enough, that dad's not dying quick enough, and we, we, we need to get dad out of the way. That's what Herod thought about his boys. So he had his, both of his boys brutally murdered. He had his wife, and, and, and by the way, Herod was not a Jew to begin with. Herod was an Edomite. He married a woman who was a Jew. And Later, he even had her killed, which caused him to lose a lot of his credibility and credence there in Jerusalem. He had his wife murdered. He had his brother-in-law murdered. He had his mother-in-law murdered, all because he felt like they posed a threat to his throne. He was holding tightly to his throne, and he wasn't going to let it go, and he was going to fight, and he was going to kill anybody and now all of a sudden there's this baby that's been born that is being referred to as the king of the Jews. And he said, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to stop this if it's the last thing that I do. And notice to the extreme that he goes, he said, if I have to kill every baby under two years of age to make sure I get the one that I need to wipe out, I'll do whatever I have to do to make it happen. Now let me just tell you something this morning. This was not an original thought with Herod. This is something that had been going on since the very beginning of time. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, notice what happens. This is after the sin of Adam and Eve. And God is now pronouncing curses on Adam, Eve, the serpent, all of those that took part in that. And notice what he says. He said, I will put enmity between thee, talking about the serpent and the woman, and between thy seed, and notice this now, her seed. Hold on a minute. Her seed, we all know from education, sex education classes that we've been in, that the woman doesn't contribute the seed. The man is the one who contributes the seed. The woman is the one who contributes the egg. So even right here in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, we see a prophecy that there's going to be a miraculous birth 
And that miraculous birth that he's referring to here, of course, will be the Messiah, will be Jesus. And notice what's going to happen. He said, and he, the seed of woman, is going to crush thy head and thou shalt crush his heel. Now, to get your heel struck is, is just simply meant to, 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 to have a serpent strike on your heel. But notice, even though the serpent would strike the heel of Jesus, Jesus would deal with the serpent. Jesus would deal with the snake the way that you're supposed to deal with a snake. Man, he would put the head of that serpent under his foot and he would crush his head. And ever since then, do you know what Satan's been trying to do? Ever since then, Satan's been trying to keep from getting his head crushed. That's what he's been trying to do. I mean, you think about it. What if somebody texted you this afternoon? You didn't know whose number it was. You didn't know who it was that was texting you. But they texted you and said, by the way, tomorrow afternoon at 2.30, I'm going to crush your head. How do you respond to that? And you get up the next morning, you're trying to plan your day. And you're like, well, I got to stop. You know, I got to get my car filled up with gas. I need to stop by, pick up a few groceries. And oh, by the way, I need to plan for 2.30 today to not get my head crushed. I remember when I was in elementary school, we had a, we had a kid in elementary school. Man, he was big. He was a bully. His name was Doug O'Shields. And I don't care if he's watching and hears me say his name. <laughs> I ain't scared of him no more. But he got it in his mind one time that he was going to beat up every boy in the school. And sure enough, man, he started and just went one at a time. And finally, he, he walked up to me and said, you're next. I'm telling you, all that night, I was thinking about how can I keep from getting my head crushed? How can I keep from getting beat up by this bully? Because if you've been told that you're going to get your head crushed, you're doing everything that you possibly can to keep from getting your head crushed. And notice what he says here. He tells Satan thousands of years before it's going to happen, I'm going to crush your head. Now, now we know that, that the, the Bible even tells us where, where the, the, the seed of woman is going to come from, that it's going to come first through Adam and Eve. But then he gets even more specific and says it's going to come through the nation of Israel, that the Messiah is going to come out of the nation of Israel. Why do you think it is that in Exodus chapter 1, one day, all of a sudden, Pharaoh wakes up? And, and, and feels like that the nation of Israel is beginning to get too powerful. And so what does he decide to do? He said, we're going to kill all boys under the age of two. You don't just wake up and decide one day that you're going to kill. That's Satan trying to keep from getting his head crushed. Because he knows that if I can put an end to the nation of Israel, then I can put an end to getting my head crushed. Why do you think it is that a maniac like a man by the name of Haman in the book of Esther would suddenly come up with a plan and say, you know what would be cool today? It would be cool if I could just kill all of the Jews. Now, now why, why does a man get a thought like that? How does a man become a maniac like that? Because it's Satan working through them, trying to keep from getting his head crushed. Well, God gets even more specific than that. God said they're not, he's not going to just come from the nation of Israel. He's going to come from the tribe. Out of the 12 tribes of Israel, he's going to come from the tribe of Judah. And so Satan does everything he possibly can to defile the tribe of Judah. God gets even more specific. He said, out of the tribe of 
Judah, the Messiah is going to come from the house and from the lineage of King David. Why do you think it is that Saul just woke up one day and said, you know what, David, you've been good to me. You've been loyal to me. You're married to my daughter. You're my son-in-law. You fight my battles for me. I think I'll kill you. Why do you think a man comes up with an idea like that? Because it's the enemy working through him, knowing that if I can put an end to the reign of David then, and, and, and the house and the lineage of David, then I can keep the one coming who has threatened to crush my head. I mean, you even think about John, the revelator. He's looking back here in Revelation 12, 3 and 4, and he's talking about the nation of Israel, and he's talking about how that the nation of Israel is like a woman who is giving birth to a baby. And notice he said, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. He's talking there about how that Satan, when he he rebelled against God and God kicked him out of heaven that he was able to persuade a third of the angels in heaven to rebel with him against God and that's what we know now as the fallen angels or evil spirits through which Satan works to get his work done. But notice it says, and the dragon stood before the woman, the nation of Israel, who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. You see, from the beginning of time, it's been the purpose of the enemy to try and end Christmas by trying to somehow end the heritage or the line, the family through which the Messiah would come. He could not succeed with the nation of Israel. He could not succeed with the tribe of Judah. He could not succeed through the house and the lineage of David. And so now what is he trying to do? He's working through Herod and trying to use Herod to destroy the Messiah to, but before the Messiah has the opportunity to live and crush his head. But, but, but notice what happens when you get to Matthew chapter two. Now, when Herod was dead, who was dead? Herod was dead. Not Jesus is dead, but the one who's trying to kill Jesus is dead. Yeah, he may have wanted Jesus dead, but God said it's not going to be him that's going to die. It's going to be you that's going to die. And it said that when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, arise, take the young child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Oh, I'm telling you, why do you think it is that even to this day that the devil continues to fight against the nation of Israel because he knows that there are still prophecies yet to be fulfilled about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and he's doing everything that he possibly can to keep that from happening. That's why we gotta stand in the gap. That's why we've gotta pray for the nation of Israel because they're under an attack unlike any other nation on the face of the earth because through them has come the Messiah and through them will once again come the awaited Messiah, our awaited Savior, our Lord who's coming back to put everything back in the order that it ought to be. Somebody ought to give God some good praise right there. Amen. So when you go back to Isaiah chapter nine, verse two, it says the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined.
So even in the messiness, even in the complexity of it all, in the darkness comes Jesus. And we see a fulfillment of that prophecy, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, and in John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, that said, when Jesus came in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and I love this, and the darkness has not overcome it. There is more power in light than there is in darkness. And the moment that light enters the world, the darkness had to flee. Amen. And then notice what Jesus said in John 8 and 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, I am a light to the world. He didn't say, I am one of many lights to the world. No, he said, I am the light of the world. Listen to me. Confucius is not the light and Muhammad is not the light. Amen. And Allah is not the light. None of those. Buddha is not the light. There's only one light of the world and the light of the world is Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he has the power to overcome darkness. As I close, I think it's interesting here and you guys can go ahead and come. Where Jesus chooses to make this statement I am the light of the world. Because if you go back to the scripture just before it, do you know what you read about? You read about the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. A woman who was living in spiritual darkness. And then if you go to the story right after he makes this statement, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 9, it's the story of a man who was born blind. So right in the middle of these two stories, one talking about spiritual darkness... And the other one talking about physical darkness, Jesus stands and says, I am the light of the world. If you're in spiritual darkness, I'm what you need. If you're in physical darkness, I'm what you need. I am the light of the world. So this morning, there may be somebody here in this room today who, are, who is in spiritual darkness, like that woman caught in the act of adultery. She was lost. She didn't know any better. I guess you could say that not only was she spiritually in darkness, but mentally, intellectually, she had no knowledge of God. She had no knowledge of who Jesus was and what Jesus could do in her life. But she found out that he could be the light that gives her the guidance, the instruction. Because that's what light does, isn't it? Light guides. The Bible says this about the word of God. It says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. So his word guides us. His light guides us. So you may be in spiritual darkness today. He's the light that can put an end to your spiritual darkness so that you can see more clearly. You may be in this room here today and in physical darkness. And by that, I mean not just physically blind, but maybe some other kind of a physical ailment in your body. Jesus said, I'm the light. I can be what you need. 
to make sure that you are completely made whole. The light of the world, Summerton Church of God, let's be reminded, is Jesus. Is Jesus. And just before he left this world, you know what he said to us? You are the light of the world. Now, now that doesn't mean that we're in the light in the sense that we're the source of the light because we're not the source of the light. We're more like the moon and he's more like the sun. He is the source of light and we are to reflect that light. So that's why every Sunday when we leave, I tell you, I tell you, listen, let's go be light. Let's go reflect the light of God's love. Let's go reflect the light of God's hope, God's joy, God's peace to everyone. Amen. Are y'all hearing me this morning? The devil can't stop. Through all of his darkness, his complexity, his mess, he can't stop the plan and the purpose of God. Well, I hope that you were blessed and inspired by today's message. We here at Summerton Church of God believe that God is a God who still does miracles. And we're seeing it on a weekly basis. People's lives being transformed by the power of God, being saved, healed, and delivered for the glory of God. And we want you to experience it for yourself. So why don't you come and be our guest one Sunday here at Summerton Church of God. I look forward to personally meeting you.